my job is to decide if we can't get consensus I decide I call it that's what I get paid for that's how I do that but I also know when you've got something wrong I fix it as quick as you can that's John Dawson CEO of UK-based Oxford Biomedica listen in now to hear the conversation I recently had with John when he was in New York I'm John Simboli you're listening to BioBoss this afternoon I'm in New York speaking with John Dawson CEO of Oxford Biomedica John, how did you find yourself as CEO at Oxford Biomedica? Been doing it a while now, about ten and a half years, and uh, I originally came onto the board back in, let me think, 2008, I think it was. How did you decide you wanted to lead a biopharma company? I don't think you decide that. I think you get the chance sometimes. And I think my job at Cephalon was, I'd gone in there as middle ranking. I came out of head of Europe there after four years, I think it was. And then we built the company there. I think we spent a billion dollars building that in, in Europe. Um, I got on to the main committee back in the US, the exec committee, 10 people of a company of 6,000. So that was good progress. I was very pleased with that. But that was never planned. So I did well. I got recognized. It went very well for me. And I came out of that. Um, literally, I had six months off deciding what to do in my life after that because I'd had a pretty hard 10 years doing that. And then after that, decided what I wanted to do. I wanted to lead a company. So I looked out for opportunities. This one came along and it seemed the right one to do. So you must have had a lot to look at and a lot of things to sift through and a lot of opportunities. How did you decide that this was the one that was going to allow you to do what you, what you had set out to do? It's a very difficult question to answer that because you don't really know where the company's going at the time because I'd been a specialist in sales and marketing by that point. So I was used to taking drugs to market, uh, the regulatory side, working with the teams, running sales forces, uh, less regulatory and clinical, but a fair bit of it. Now, my life changed completely going to early stage biotech, working on drugs that weren't approved, working on trials, working on new drugs and processes of uh, manufacture. So it was a completely different job for me to come in to try and do. Uh, it was quite a challenge at the time, a lot to learn because gene cell therapy is complicated, but actually it was a great job to take and I'm so glad I did. So when you run into someone who knows you a little bit but hasn't been in touch for a while, maybe it's a, some sort of gathering on, on a social level and they say, what are you doing? And then you could say, I'm the CEO and give a lot of technical answers, but when someone says, what's your job? What do you say? Well, I don't normally disclose that much about my my work life to, to friends, but I don't talk about that much. If I do, it tends to captivate a dinner table. So if I talk about what I do, so you talk about uh, what you do for a living. Well, I'm involved in curing cancer for children and we are successful. It's working in uh, leukemia. I working on drugs for my own company that actually can cure childhood blindnesses and then people suddenly stop and listen to you and, uh, and that's actually quite captivating now I don't do it to tell people stories about why that healthcare became very interesting to me you know, I'm an accountant by background so I'm working in healthcare is quite an oddity at times how it works out that way but uh, it's been really exciting to work in that and I learned very early, early on in my time at Cephalon I've been at Arizona before that that working with the patient groups was such fun I got so involved in that so it became something I was really quite uh, passionate about so building a company, taking it forward I'd done it once already with Cephalon I built that from a third person into Europe I think when I left it was a thousand people um, going and doing something else to build something again seemed a natural thing to do it's a very different type of business it's a very different set, set of skill sets but management is management and if you get it right get the right people around you things tend to come together can you remember way back to when you were eight or nine or ten years old and what you wanted to do and and how that has anything to do with or not anything to do with what you're doing now my ambition every ambition in the world of mine was then to be a footballer 
which was one possibility, or more, more likely what I wanted to do was a, a part of British Airways flying 747s. I lived by the airport, it's what I always wanted to do, and it all lined up to go and do it. And um, at the time I came out of school, you could go and do the various types of degrees to fit that. And they had enough pilots at that point in time, so they closed the college down. I actually went for the interview, and everything was going okay. But um, if not taking people on that year, I then changed tack completely and decided to go and do a maths degree instead. So that's that changed my life somewhat. <laughs> As you can remember from when you started to where you are now, in terms of what people call management style, what have you learned about your management style? What works? What doesn't work for you? I think when you start out, you've got a lot to prove. So you come out far more aggressive on decisions and you push harder and don't sleep very much because you're always working. I think what you learn over time is a good team allows you to actually delegate much more. Um, style is actually, I like consensus. My job is to decide if we can't get consensus, I decide I call it. That's what I get paid for. That's how I do that. But I also know when you've got something wrong, fix it as quick as you can. John, what's new at Oxford Biomedica? The change in the popularity of cell and gene therapy has just changed completely since the approval of Kimaya back in the middle of 2017. So before that, we were working with Novartis, but it didn't seem to get recognised by too many people. Once that drug was approved, the world realised cell and gene therapy was here and had been approved in the US to be treating patients. A massive step forward and it changed the awareness of companies and investors. So I would say since then, our world of actually doing deals and having new partners to come in to work with us has been revolutionised. We've taken our BD department up from one and a half to seven, I think it is now. Still less stressed by keeping up with everything. But actually, something changed in the world of what we did. We had this platform called Lentivector, which is a delivery vector we use to get um, cells into the brain or put back in the T-cells for cancer, back into the body again. And it can actually, ex vivo, in vivo, if we go in vivo, we inject into part of the body or the eye or something, that's straight in. If we go ex vivo, take blood from the patient, extract cells you want to work on, work on them, back into our vector and back into the body again. So that's quite a big process. You take blood from the patient in the hospital, take it back into the processing center, you actually put that with our vector, having worked on it already, back to the hospital, back into the patient. So that's a change in the way we did things, and that's what's made our business very different now to what it used to be. So the new stuff is we're working on the ex vivo gene therapies, or cell therapies as they're sometimes called, working on those, it's changed the world of demand in what we do completely. So I would say, Without that having happened, our business would be in a very different place today to where it is. That having happened, we are in great demand to work with lots of people. John, when people ask you, who is Oxford Biomedica, how do you like to answer that? Well, I'm a world-leading cell and gene therapy company, and the backbone of our company is our Lentivector viral delivery system. With that, we can treat chronic disease in patients, both in using it in vivo in the body, ex vivo for cell and gene therapies along the lines of uh, the Kimurai drug and Novartis, and that allows us to treat patients with a once-only injection. Does gene therapy in some ways truly offer the potential to have a one-time transformation, one-time cure? Do you use the word cure? Is, is it possible through gene therapy to, to in one intervention to it's change certain, someone's certainly life. certainly diseases, yes, that's the answer. If you go to Stargardt's um, disease in the eye for children, one of our partners there, Sanofi has that, it's our drug, we license to them. 
that is a defective ABCR gene in the back of the eye. We go we inject a new corrected gene into the back of the retina and theoretically that will correct vision. So yes is the answer, we can take that away and that's permanent. If you think about other things such as wet AMD, we have treatments there where we inject into the back of the eye with um, endostatin and angiostatin there to stop the scarring of the back of the retina. Again that is once it's in there is permanent so it expresses about six years now with no diminution of expression. So we are seeing things we can change uh, permanently and it's a once only injection. So in Parkinson's we don't cure, we alleviate the symptoms. We don't we fix something or create a partner flow of dopamine in a part of the brain where it's used rather than it's being made somewhere else and passed up by the synapse. So effectively we're doing it a different way, but it is taking away the symptoms. It will disrupt the whole of healthcare eventually. I mean, many companies have to come into cell gene therapy because long-term revenue generators for them have been replaced by one cell gene therapy. When you make a presentation and you do your best to, to clarify and afterwards over a cup of coffee, you, you say to them, more likely they say to you, oh, I understand that this is your focus and you're thinking, no. Okay. <laughs> so when, when people don't get it right, when people don't understand the story that you're trying to tell, what do they misunderstand and then how do you address that? There is misunderstandings around various parts of cell and gene therapy. For example, people think that the other vector type that you can use in the body is AAV. People think that's in vivo and lentivector is only for ex vivo. That's incorrect. So we actually don't have the two together. We can do both. So we tend to target uh, the eye, the brain, uh, lung, liver, and of course the ex vivo cell therapies as well. So we can do all of those things. AAV can't do all of those things. We d but they complement us in the market. So we have places we can go and there are places where they can't, can't go and vice versa. And then when you explain that to them today, what's the response? Still, they don't quite get the model sometimes about how we are a manufacturing company with partners and get royalties as well, the long-term financial interest there, alongside doing our own products sometimes. That's become more in vogue in the last six months or so. That was a hard one to sell two or three years ago. Now people love selling gene therapy, so it's an easier sell. The platform type approach. What makes Oxford Biomedica different from other companies in your field or in your space? But we lead the world in the engineering of lent effectors. So that's our backbone of our business. We can work on that. We have IP around it as well. So we work with some very big partners and various royalties up to the end of our patents and beyond because of our know-how. So we have the know-how alongside the IP, which is really important to us. But we also have the ability to engineer vectors. So when we work with somebody like Novartis with Kimraya for the pediatric leukemia, we can take their drug in the early stages out of Pennsylvania University. We engineer it back at our laboratories. We optimize it and then we go into our manufacturing suites and make it after that. So we have the ability to temper and design a process that fits exactly the drug we're trying to make at that time. That tends to be quite unique in the world currently. What makes a good partner for Oxford Biomedica? Generally a collaborative partner we can work with, we can understand and work with them and improve what they have. So it's a joint effort sometimes to make these things work. If we go to Novartis, they've been very supportive to get us where we are today. We had to have um, through the FDA inspections, quality systems in place. We didn't have those. We had to have those developed and they schooled us through, had to get those in place and got us ready for those inspections, working with us day by day, sometimes over the weekends as well. So nowadays we're much better at that, have the right people in place to run that quite normally. It's just a process now, but at the time we had to learn it. But they have been supportive to us as well in our more trickier days of cash flow. So they've always been supportive there as a business in people and in making sure we had the right uh, support in place at the right time. So that's great. The other guys we like working with closely would be Orchard, um, very close relationships there with the teams. Teams work extremely closely and I think probably our teams speak to their teams nearly every day. 
um, as well as from their parties too. So there's an ongoing relationship. It's not something that they just forget about and leave us to do and it happens afterwards. It's too important to them. They can't do what they do without what we do. Vice versa, of course, but um, they need us for their drugs to work without question. And there is no substitute. What kind of people are a good fit at Oxford Biomedica? We need to have people who are actually very good in the labs, working on the science for us, and again, we're very careful who we take into that. We've had to find a lot of people very quickly. So I take you back to January 14, we were 80 people. By the end of December 18, we were 432. And by December 19, we'll be 600. So that's big growth. Now that's going across the business. That's manufacturing, that's accounting, that's HR, that's everything you can think of as coming in to do that. It's also making sure we're beefing up our uh, research and development side of things because effectively now we're doing a lot more of our own drugs as well so we've had to probably treat that a little bit quieter for the last few years to make sure we've got the manufacturing part right that had to succeed so we got that right last year so we're happy with that pushing that forward very hard but now we're going to build a business around the drugs as well that we make, make ourselves so uh, rapid expansion brings with it many issues but um, you'd be surprised how things like car parking and desks people have to sit at and 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 become a problem but uh, we're expanding very very quickly quickly both in people and in sites to keep up with that. At this stage do you allow yourself to think to how your work will affect people's lives if it's successful? Always. Yeah, no, it's not something I, I don't think about every day because that's what we do it for. I mean um, I learned a long time ago working in healthcare where I've worked in my third, it's my third company now. Um, I did it because I really enjoyed what I saw and what I worked on and the benefits you're bringing forward to first of all patients that's where we do it for now if you can get the shareholders have to do well with you otherwise you don't have a company simple as that you have to have the ability to go and get money when you need it from shareholders and actually fund the company you give them a return based upon how you succeed in making patient lives better you have to mix the two up understand that at some points in time either one has to rule but the ultimate goal is to make patients lives better and my limited understanding of this is you're not talking about incremental change, you're talking about a transformative change. In certain situations, absolutely. Kimraya gives 82% um, remission in pediatric leukemia for children. Now that's quite, there's nothing like it in the world yet, and that's the first thing to do that in that type of indication. If you can reverse childhood blindnesses, if you can go in and um, with a once only injection, look at the other retinal diseases as well. Um, Parkinson's, we're working with Axavan and Parkinson's. If you can actually go in and take away the motor symptom problems people have with Parkinson's, life-changing effect here, and you know, you're giving people their lives back. Is Oxford Biomedica planning to establish a presence in the US at some point? It's something we look at very carefully. Uh, we have had them in the past. We've had uh, in San Diego, we had an operation a few years back. The economy turned against us and we had to close that down before my time, but it was here. It's something we think about would be, be a better position to have in certain functions over in America and in certain situations where that could be the case. Not something we jumped at just yet, but as a board we think about it very regularly. And we haven't yet decided what exactly that would be people-wise, but we'll address that as we need to. If you were to establish U.S. presence, would that in any way be advantageous as far as access to capital? Having people here does not make that a slam dunk case at all. Um, we come from Europe, we're used to finance being tough to get hold of, drug development over there is not well financed anymore, so coming to America to find money for that could be an attractive thing to do for us at some point in time. But I would say that the European side of things has driven us to have a P&L that balances now, we're profitable, and plan to be so going forward, if we can be. Looking at that situation, yes, I think coming to America, having people here, 
Uh, it would take more than just being here with people to actually have access to capital. You can do it by not putting anybody here anyway. You can just actually have people investing into the UK company from here if we choose to do that. So I don't think putting people into the US is a, is a crunch point for getting that part of it done. If you were to list here or, or dual list here, then you would need some sort of presence and some sort of people here. What do you find are useful ways for you to stay in touch with people in your field and, and find out that what new ideas are and, and get a chance for you to tell them what you're thinking? I don't get to go to all the conferences I used to go to, but the ones I would really try and go to would be the ARM conferences, uh, try and present there normally, uh, if I don't, one of the guys does, and all going, going to the big banking conferences, JP Morgan in particular, because everybody is there, so I can go through in four days a number of people it would take me months to see otherwise, so you bump into so many people and arrange to meet so many people. And the other banking conferences around the world are really quite useful, and there are some specialist banking gene therapy conferences as well, which we find very useful to go to. And all the guys we want to talk to are always there. What's the nature of the partnership and the relationship with Microsoft? Uh, Microsoft came to us to work with us, which is a great place for us to be. They want to work in industry and manufacturing for pharmaceuticals. So they picked us to actually work with to understand how to do that and roll out a more generic uh, platform for other people. So coming to us, um, it's a great benefit for us because we can look at our manufacturing data. We have an immense amount of data coming out every single batch we make. A batch takes us about six weeks to make and probably another three or four months of analytical testing after us to release it. So all of that data comes through. If we know about problems sooner, earlier, faster, and have all the data crunching it to find out what's going on in the batch, even as it's being made in some cases, then we'll be able to do that. But the volume of data is too much for the human eye to process. So putting it up into the Azure cloud with Microsoft is the perfect way to work with them and then see analytics coming from that which allows to improve what we do. So it's a way of going forward with artificial intelligence, machine learning, but also having um, a very robust set of data uh, that we can work from and improve our processes. Our big thing has always been improving what we're doing and the yields better. So having the data in the background to do that will be absolutely gigantic for us. It will disrupt the whole of healthcare eventually. I mean, many companies have to come into sound gene therapy because long-term revenue generators for them have been replaced by one sound gene therapy. John, thanks for taking time to talk with me this afternoon. It's a pleasure. Great to see you. In my conversation with John Dawson, he told me how, as a young man, he loved airplanes and planned to become a pilot. As it turned out, John became CEO of a biopharmaceutical company at the forefront of gene therapy. Not exactly the same as being captain of an airplane, but close enough to make me see how either the pilot or CEO path would suit John. He has the ability to see the big picture while zeroing in on details in real time. We think of pilot Chesley Captain Sully Sullenberger as a man who knows what decisions he needs to make and when to make them. But as Sully says, not every situation can be foreseen or anticipated. There isn't a checklist for everything. Which brings to mind something John Dawson told me during our conversation as he described his role as CEO. I get paid to decide things, but when things get off track, you fix it as quickly as you can. I'm John Simbley. You're listening to BioBoss. <laughs>